the full encompassing definition of empathy is not just simply being able to feel and communicate with people in empathetic ways, but being able then to desire to not only understand somebody's pain, but want to take an active role. May not be solving the whole thing, but solving some of it. You know, like a role in alleviating that pain, changing that pain, which does require a non-sedentary action. Like it requires motion of some sort, emotion of some sort, involvement of some sort, relation of some sort. Right. Compassion, it doesn't just stop at the emotion, but right, moves to motion. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area. From Changelog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese. Today, we're going to revisit the topic of empathy. And in particular, this idea that it all begins with empathy. All healing, all relational struggles, all societal struggles, all the ways we are against one another, the way that we come back to center is by empathy. So did you know it all begins with empathy, Mario? I do. You know, it is such a critical thing. And I actually, like, it so reminds me of this early experience with my husband. So we had gone to this sort of training for premarital counseling, and it was a whole group event. And one of the exercises that they had everybody do is actually had partners switch shoes. So my husband put on my shoes, I put on his. And he often references back to that and says, I should have known then. Oh, boy. (laughs) Right? (laughs) (laughs) It's like when you hear all the time, like, you know, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes kind of thing. Like you literally put on somebody else's shoes. Yes. And you get their perspective. Yes. And so in working with couples a lot, you know, part of what I actively try to help them do is see things from their partner's perspective. Yeah. Right. And that it really changes even how we feel when we can see things from another person's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why I think it's really important for us to camp out on this this idea that it all begins with empathy is because in many ways, as you said here, even relationally with you know husband and wife or spouses or partners or whatever, in these kind of relationships, seeing eye to eye requires this ability to see from somebody else's perspective. Mm-hmm. And so in all facets of life, all the challenges that are, you know, are faced out there. If we don't slow down enough to take time to understand, listen, and we'll go through a lot of these different things that kind of give this perspective of empathy, but like slow down enough to listen and to really see things from somebody else's eyes. And like, there's no healing. There's no healing that's possible unless we do that. That's exactly it. And that empathy as defined as really giving us access to another person's 
internal state by recreating a sort of representation of that in the observing person, right? And so when I talk about healing, I think of it from a relational perspective, right? Of going, I could see how they could see it from that perspective, but that doesn't mean that's my perspective, right? Right. Hence why it is recreating this sort of representation in the observing person. Yeah. It's hard too. I mean, this is a learned behavior, right? You have to practice. You have to show up and practice. It is. It requires some other things that compassion is a result of some of these things as well. I mean, just maybe this is where things go awry is that it does take practice. It does take learned behavior. Empathy may be a natural thing that occurs between humans, but to truly like understand the concept and to deploy it in your life consistently You know, like to keep putting it out there, to keep trying and keep showing back up again. It takes a desire, right? you got to want to be empathetic to people. I'm having flashbacks of cheerleading days. (laughs) Like you got to will it to want it. (laughs) You got to will it to want it. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But that it does. And that I think it's hard. And you, you talked about that, you know, this is a learned thing, but that it's something we all do throughout our lives, but it is very much a skill. So all of us might have sort of personality traits or characteristics that lead us to being more empathetic sort of naturally, but that doesn't mean it's a fixed state. And I think that's why these conversations are so valuable because there's so many things in our lives that we can build if we put forth effort relative to that, right? And so I think one of the challenges for many people is navigating it. How do I manage relationships with others when maybe they are less empathetic or unempathetic? Yeah. Well, it kind of goes back to relationships generally. If when involved in a relationship, if you think I'm in this relationship because I think at some point this, this person will change or I can change them. Well, you kind of have to accept people for who and where they are and not think, well, I love them because of the future version I can make them or they will become, not (laughs) because of the person they are today. And that's kind of where things get off track, too, because if we're in that kind of zone, we're thinking, like, that's not empathy at all. That's I don't know what that's called. I'm not (laughs) not a psychologist. I don't have no idea what the the term that, but it's not okay. Yeah. Yeah, I want to love the people I love because of who they are, not because of who they will be or who I think I can make them be. Yeah. Well, so in order for our listeners to sort of understand, we've we've talked about empathy in other episodes, but we want to do a deeper dive relative to relationships and understanding this in a broader, deeper way. And so it was psychologists Daniel Goleman and Paul Ekman who broke down this concept of empathy into three different categories. So they describe it as there's cognitive empathy emotional empathy, and then compassionate empathy. And so cognitive empathy is really the sense of perspective taking that we're talking about. And it's the ability to understand how a person feels and what they might be thinking. Okay. But it doesn't necessarily engage one's emotions. So it's much more of a rational and logical process. So I think about it like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Right. Yeah, yeah, I get it. (laughs) That's good. I I get that. (laughs) Right? Where 
that feels a bit flippant. And so it's uh, like more ethereal or sort of distance, disengaged from actually, right? Right. So this is a way in which I can say, and I have to create this caveat, in that one of the things as we begin to do research around a topic is everybody utilizes different language. And so researchers are talking about this and going, well, is cognitive empathy really empathy? Or is that more relative to what some might call just perspective taking and others might call it theory of mind? And then we can just, you know, tunnel down. (laughs) Right. Go too far. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, from a layman's perspective, someone who's not trained in psychology, really aside from my curiosity, I can see how this is a variation of empathy and Daniel's right. I mean, I can see that because like it may not be the full picture of what we see and know and try to describe as empathy. It's a, a sliver of it. And with this sliver and two other slivers, you get to build upon the full picture, you know, the full picture of empathy. It's like multi-pane glass. It's all the window. Yeah, sure. Good analogy. So I think of it, you know, one of the things or ways in which cognitive empathy can sort of be helpful is a way in which it helps us communicate more effectively, right? Because if I have an awareness of where another person is at, it helps us sort of um, shoot information or relay information to that person in a way that is going to be best received. Right. Which is a skill. I mean, it's totally... It is empathy. It's a variation of it. It's definitely something you can get better at. And relaying information in a way that's best received, imagine the opposite. Relaying information where it's not well received. I mean, like, yeah, we need that in as part of the the empathetic process, being and showing empathy and having compassion. If that was a missing component, would you have the full picture of empathy? That's kind of what I mean. Like, would you have the full picture? You probably wouldn't. Right. Yeah. And this is why, like, in... Other episodes, we've talked about sort of understanding like what's beneath the iceberg of an individual Mm -hmm. and how that makes a difference. If you recognize sort of where they've come from, it allows you to take a different perspective and then can relate with them differently. Right. The next one's probably the one that people identify with most easily, emotional empathy. Yeah. That seems like the, the real empathy, right? Right. In quotes, the real Slim Shady, the real empathy, <laughs> I don't know. Right. Well, it really helps build emotional connections with other people. You know, and a lot of research around empathy has been focused on pain or negative emotions, right? Because it's this way, I think of like commiserating or, you know, I know sort of having been through graduate school and all the hurdles you got to jump through, there was a sense of sort of shared empathy which look like camaraderie of like, oh, you know how bad that sucked too, right? right? Like, oh yeah, I got it. Yes. You connect more with them because you felt the same pain. And so you kind of love them more and want them to feel less pain because you felt the same pain and onward you go through connecting deeper because you have similarities. That's what we all do. We connect on similarities, right? Right. And so if you connect on the pain level or maybe even the healing process, that's why even grieving folks, the people who have lost loved ones, they get together for grief share or grief meetings and things like that. And they, they share stories. So sometimes hearing somebody else's story is healing to you because you're not alone. And that's what we, we all don't want to be 
alone. We need companionship, and that's kind of meet with your companion in empathy. Yeah, and this is why it gets a little murky even in in talking about it because having that perspective taking is a valuable aspect to feeling the emotional connection, right? Like I've been where you've been and I know that you can get through it. Like look at I've encountered hardships and I got through it and so let me help bolster or boost you as you face this hardship or challenging thing that you're trying to navigate. Yeah, you often even wonder, did I go through that just to help others who go through it after me? Right. You know, and what a burden that is, but also a blessing. It's like, well, great. I will help these people because I've been there too. And you almost do it begrudgingly, but but at the same time, it's it's very fulfilling because you get to like have, for some reason, whatever you went through, whether it's grief and loss of a person, or maybe it's somebody in business who failed significantly and tanked. Mm-hmm. And they can like reach out to other future founders or other makers, like don't do these things or whatever. Like, unfortunately, they had to go through the mess to learn the things to pass on the knowledge. Mm-hmm. So there's like that resentment of that, but still healing because it wasn't in vain. Yes. Yeah. Well, so even getting at that, it sort of sparks this thought in me relative to when this emotional empathy doesn't work so well, like because the healing hasn't happened. You know, some people will talk about make your mess your message, which there's merit in. However, ideally, there's some healing that happened first because otherwise this emotional sense of empathy, like, allows me to sort of over relate with somebody else as if like, oh, yeah, I'm back there in it. So I can be overwhelmed by my own emotions in a way that then I can't respond in a helpful way. I mean, can you imagine from a therapist perspective, if you shared something really upsetting and sort of saddening with me and then I started crying? (laughs) (laughs) That wouldn't be so good. I didn't sign up for that. (laughs) You're supposed to listen, not feel. Right. And it doesn't mean though that like sometimes that isn't warranted in the sense of like not falling apart, but like, wow, that pain is like so heavy, you know? Yeah. So it gets at this other component relative to our own ability to modulate our emotions as we empathize with another. Yeah. It just occurred to me that uh, the challenge you face personally, you face personally as a human, has got to be pretty hard to be both therapist for a time frame of the day. Or maybe on-off switch, you know, how do you modulate, mm-hmm. you know, the professional Mario who has to sit there and not cry when you hear a super sad story? Because I'm sure you hear some very terrible things. Sure. And and to not be emotionally involved, but be clinically involved, but still be human, like to show up. I mean, I can only imagine the challenge you face relationally because of the kind of work you do and have to do and the way you have to on-off or show up in certain ways. Because like, you're right. If you showed up to work today, sat down with somebody, heard a really sad story and started crying as a result, I'm sure you have emotion involved, but you have to be um, very purposeful with how you display your involvement, you know? Yeah. Because you're there for a purpose and your purpose is therapy and therapy is, it's a process. It is. And I mean, just in that sense to be able to, I mean, it's a skill I've cultivated over years. And ideally, this is why, I mean, people go to school and learn for themselves and really sort of practice yeah. experimenting with themselves relative to what habits 
work. I think, you know, the research relative to the amount of, you know, mental health professionals who exercises is ridiculously high. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, because you barter that energy of like, I'm going to exchange sort of this negative for the positive and it helps my own physiology and to hold more emotions. Yeah, because emotions, what is it? Emotions or emotions? What was it? Uh, well, emotions are energy. Uh, emotions are energy. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I was trying to go back in my mind. What is it that to, to be said? Emotions are energy. They have to go somewhere. And that's like the thing with like even outcry or whatever it might be. Like the display of energy after an emotion may not always be warranted, but it's justified in terms of like it's got to go somewhere. Right. You know, it's got to go somewhere. It's like a lightning rod, like a lightning bolt. It's got to go down. It's going to hit the earth somewhere or something. Right. And this is why. So I always talk about sort of my line of work as, you know, it's an incredibly social field. Like I'm interfacing with people all day, but it's also incredibly lonely because I'm not bartering that in a verbal way with other people, you know? Right. Like sort of recognizing and being aware of myself, what I can handle, what are my commitments, responsibilities, what can I bring to the table? How much can I allocate? And do I need to reallocate sort of where I spend my time, the things I get invested in, and that sort of thing? But part of what you're even talking about relative to this is that third aspect of empathy that Goleman and Ekman talk about, which is compassionate empathy. And this goes beyond simply understanding others and sharing their feelings, but Mm -hmm. actually moves us to take action to help in whatever way that we can. Yeah, because the true definition, the full encompassing, not the true, but the full encompassing definition of empathy is not just simply being able to feel and communicate with people in empathetic ways, but being able then to desire to not only understand somebody's pain, but want to take an active role. may not be solving the whole thing, but solving some of it. You know, like a role in alleviating that pain, changing that pain, which does require a non-sedentary action. Like it requires motion of some sort, emotion of some sort, involvement of some sort, relation of some sort. Right. Compassion, it doesn't just stop at the emotion, but right, moves to motion. Here in my area, there tends to be a fair amount of homeless people. And so you encounter them in one way or another and going, here's water, here's food. I'm, I'm motivated and moved to respond to them in a way. And, and interestingly enough, right, there isn't necessarily a verbal exchange other than maybe it's sort of them, you know, making their need known. But that I'm like, you know, not just, oh, that's really sad or too bad, i.e. the emotional empathy, but I'm going to be compassionate and go, what do I have that I could share with you that might buffer the pain that you're encountering? Mm-hmm. And you may not solve the whole problem. No. It may be that day's problem. It, mm-hmm. it may not be, here's what gets you out of homelessness and into stable housing, stable jobs, stable relations, community, et cetera. This may be one, one action that takes you one step closer mm-hmm. or remind you that it's still possible. Right. And so talking about this compassionate empathy, I can't help but pull in some of the neuroscience relative to it uh, around mirror neurons. And mirror neurons, as we've sort of talked about before, are an interesting thing and that they're actually connected with the motor systems in our brain. So it's not surprising that 
when I feel a significant sense of empathy for another, that my body is motivated to move in response to that. Yeah. Right? So it involves this sort of prediction around, I'm presuming this is where your emotional state is. And then I can imagine that this might be something that would buffer that. And I then want to respond with an action to that. I pulled this from Psychology Today. It says, it's one on your neurons and addiction, but this is applicable here. It says, instead of our brains using logical thought processes to interpret and, as you said, predict other people's actions, we understand others not by thinking but by feeling. And mirror neurons appear to allow us to make sense of other people's intentions as well as their actions, as well as interpret facial expressions, et cetera. So it's like, you know, it's, it's the whole reason why whenever you yawn, I might yawn or whenever, you know, you scratch your chin, I might scratch my chin or you laugh, I might laugh. It's, it's this whole feel, think, but then act mm-hmm. as based upon that. Right. Yeah. Because that's really how it's sort of like this emotional resonance. I resonate with another person in terms of perspective and where they are. And so I mentioned this earlier, but it is so important to recognize that whether and to what extent we can empathize with other people has to do with situational and relational variables as well as motivational factors, right? Right. Because it's easier to have empathy for people that I suppose matter to you. Is that an easy way to phrase? I mean, I know it's kind of like just a little mm-hmm. not compassionate maybe to say it like that, but like they just people matter who don't matter. I mean, just in terms of like their closeness. Yeah, closely right. affiliate. Like if I'm an affiliate, right? you're affiliated with me, like you're in my, my in-group, right? And so this is sort of supported by other research relative to the role of oxytocin in both empathy and attachment. And if you aren't familiar with oxytocin, it's a feel-good neurochemical Mm -hmm. that helps with attachment. And so it's not that surprising to go, I would be more prone, so to speak, to have more space or room to empathize with somebody with whom I'm connected in some form or fashion. Mm. And so similarly, the research does show that we can have less empathy toward outgroup others. Yeah, and that's that probably is is a good indication too that that there lacks empathy for people or for situations or scenarios for which we don't have emotional buy-in, mm-hmm. right? Because the the proximity, the in groups, as you'd mentioned, just aren't there. Like they should be because we're all human, and it's it's really I don't know how to describe it except for that you know the world that we live in individually has like our bubbles have grown, you know, like back in the day, back in the day before the <laughs> internet, you know, before we were so connected, like we're such a hyper-connected species now. Mm-hmm. Whereas before we weren't like our worlds are so much bigger than they had been before. Not that that makes us more or less, but like it's grown our, our opportunity for empathy, like maybe beyond our, our capacity. I don't know. Like, there's studies of like how many in groups you can have. Like you can really have 12 good friends or, you know, a certain number. Like there's studies on this stuff that we can probably pull some research from. But that is essentially like you have a limited a number of people that you can truly care about, which means empathy, right? Right. So at some point we, we get to a finite resource that can only go so far before we encounter problems. 
Yeah, sort of like, I mean, this is again going back to allocating resources of like, you know, I often have said that like, I can't be a first responder in all aspects of my life, right? So knowing that my career, my job is primarily helping people through hard emotional stuff, then I can't go and do that in the same sort of way in other facets of my life simply because I'm trying to help in a way that is really helpful over here. Mm -hmm. But holding that awareness, and then I can make different decisions relative to that. And one of the things is really going, when we talk about motivational factors, like, you know, how can I really learn about somebody who is very different than I am? Because that's how I can build more empathy of like, wow. And and guess what I always discover? Mm. There's some little thread in which I can relate. And then I build upon that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I didn't know you had that shared interest. I didn't know you lived there. I didn't know you visited here. I didn't like pick something. Right. Well, what's interesting more so is that that's all backstory. Sure. We've talked about that, right? Mm -hmm. The the importance of backstory. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what it all takes is like willingness to learn about somebody else or some other group of people, you know, that's the other, that's not you, that seems dissimilar, seems, you know, alien potentially even to you, like not at all like you, but yet are. Be willing to, to slow down enough to care to listen and to hear why, how, when, what, all the W's, you know, right. when it comes to understanding the story. But the point is like getting that backstory from people is like the critical component to building this thread, as you mentioned, to seeing the similar similarities to build upon in the first place. And you can't get to a position of empathy unless you take that time or have that desire and ability. And it takes action. It takes purposeful listening. It takes intention. Right. Yeah. And so we talk about this relative to relationships from a general perspective, but what if we move it over into the specific lane relative to work, right? Because work relationships are somewhat of a different breed and that everybody comes with their own backstory. And, you know, very much like group projects when we were in school, you don't get to pick always who you work with. Right. (laughs) Like, oh, that's, that's my partner? Come on, for real? Can we do this again? <laughs> right? You know, what role does empathy have and why does it matter in the workplace? I don't know. What what role does empathy have and how does it work in the workplace? Is there a rule book for empathy in the workplace? <laughs> I would say that if you show up on a team, right? Like when you take a job, when you, when you join a group, you're joining the team. Mm-hmm. And there's some sort of social contract of joining and being a part of and playing a role in a team. Sure. Right? So from my psychology language, much of how I think about work relationships is like family systems. Okay. And so there are systems at play in work environments. And so sometimes those are more functional and sometimes they're more dysfunctional relative to aspects of power productivity, expectation, flexibility. And so everywhere we go, there's systems. And so if you're in a work environment and that system doesn't necessarily 
work for you or there's something that feels really aversive, upsetting, or abrasive that you could start to go, hmm, I wonder what it would look like. Do Is there a high degree of empathy, shared understanding that facilitates more teamwork and team goal over just the individual goal or productivity? Well, we had an awesome show on the change like a while back. David Kaplan, he's uh, he runs the software engineering team at Policy Genius, and he reached out to us, had a great great idea to kind of share, and I think you might be teeing off this generative culture idea that he shared with us. This term generative culture was coined by a sociologist named Ron Westrom in 1988, actually, and he was researching complex techno- technological systems in the organizations that produce and maintain them. Long story short, he identified these organizational cultures they range from pathological to bureaucratic to generative. And while on this call with Dave, it was really interesting to find out, like, you might be on a team that you signed up for. As we just said, like, hey, you signed up to be on this team <laughs> and realize that you're in a pathological system that may be, like, sort of completely against the way that you operate. And there's different attributes associated with pathological to bureaucratic to generative. And the idea was that you wanted to be in a generative culture, which is sort of a hybrid of many of these. And as you had said, they all kind of relate back to relational and how they work. And it's sort of top down, not so much like the organization didn't just decide it was somebody who was at the top generally. Yeah. The executives, the founders, you know, could be a small company, could be a large company, whomever, somebody sort of defined the DNA of relationships in this organization. And that's what sort of set the culture off. And when people speak of culture, that's generally what they mean is, How do people treat each other in this organization? That's culture. Right. And I would say what's tolerated. Right. That's, yeah, even better. Right. Because, you know, is there cooperation? Like this generative sort of team culture is that people are trained. Risks are shared, right? It's not like you're out there as the sole person and if you don't meet the demand or perform accordingly, like you're the one who's going to take the fall. Right. And that we failure, failure leads to inquiry, or I would say, you know, in that, that failure leads to learning instead of punishment. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's this sense of like process and sharing, like together, we're all in this together. And right, like I always say, you know, I don't need 12 goalies on a field, I need, you know, 12 players or sorry, 11 players, you know, and that everybody does their role. Right. Yeah. I don't have it in front of me, but I I once wrote, uh, I am a cog and there's a a well-known book by Seth Godin. I've read it. I love the book. It's great message, except I disagree somewhat. (laughs) And the book he wrote was called Lynchpin. And it was about being a lynchpin in your organization. And my theory was that you can't be a linchpin because it's it sort of goes against the need for the team. I go it more so into the post. I'm not being so eloquent about my message here. I'll link to it in the show notes. But it's more so that I'm like, I'm a cog. I'm, I'm here for the mission, for the team. I serve my individual purpose because at any day, any given moment, for whatever reason, I can need to be replaced. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so it's not that I'm irreplaceable linchpin. Right. Or linchpin is irreplaceable. It's that I, I want to serve the best purpose I can for my team, for my team's goal. 
right. for our collective needs. Yeah. You know, and I want to show up and do that every single day and do it well. Right. Yeah. And I think that's sort of recognizing like and going, I care. The perspective looks like we're good. We have this common goal and I'm going to sacrifice in this way or bring this to the table. Or if you, my teammate is struggling, I'm going to support them because it all converges to or towards that goal. Yeah. And this is why empathy is so important because who struggles with the same thing? Nobody. Everybody. I would say everybody, wouldn't you say? <laughs> well, everybody struggles in terms of work. Okay. I was misaligned there then. <laughs> everybody struggles, but not with the same thing. Yeah. In the sense of like what a task that I can find is super easy. I mean, I can look at it in terms of organization, right? Some people right. are super organized and they can track all the things and they bring it and that's not challenging for them. Whereas other people are like, well, it's somewhere in my house or it's somewhere in my office, right? Or somebody's got it. But there's a value that all of us bring. And so going, well, I'm so irritated or annoyed that this person can't perform like I would, right? Right, yes. (laughs) Then that's lower empathy, which then isn't going to move me to act or respond towards my team member in a helpful way to complete a project. So we have a clear understanding of empathy, at least to some degree. We understand how how it plays out, especially in the workplace. But what about whenever you're trying to be empathetic with someone or expect empathy from them and they can't give it to you? What do we do there? Yeah. Awesome question because, right, it's sort of like. It happens. It does. And you're like, why are they not showing up in these ways? Why when I respond in these ways, they don't respond back in this kind of normal or expected manner or whatever it might be this, you know, Way others do, and it's like, why aren't they showing up? Well, I can go way to the extreme of looking at it relative to the mental health issues that interfere with people's ability to empathize. Is that helpful? Sure. Somebody doesn't have to be sort of clinic meet clinical criteria for this to be an aspect of how they interface in their relationship. Because not everybody, like— all things, there's continuums. And so some people might be further on down the road than others. But when people have this sort of characterological style, and there's there's more to it than this, but one key diagnosis that wherein the lack of empathy is hallmark is what we call narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. But if we sort of zoom back and go on the continuum, like just narcissism in general— And the reason that I would say people with this issue have a hard time empathizing is because of it's it's sort of this defensive way of managing their own fragility. Right. Right. So some of the a narcissistic individual I think of is someone who thinks very highly of themselves. They sort of need like the attaboys, you know, nobody's as good as me. Other people are inferior. And this general lack of empathy. Yeah. I feel inferior or small or fragile. So I struggle with managing my own emotion relative to myself. So I'm going to perceive it as a threat to have to give credence to another person's perspective that isn't my own. So I am going to fiercely and rigidly protect myself at all cost. Mm. And that vicariously inhibits the working together, collaborating in a helpful way. 
Yeah. I had to look it up too. Cause I was like, you know, what exactly is narcissism? Like what, you know, and even Googling it, I kept landing on the personality disorder part of it. Like yeah. it was all about the clinical side. It was not like just what is narcissism generally. And I finally found a definition. It's uh, personality qualities include thinking very highly of oneself. So some of this is repeat what you said, Mario, thinking very highly of oneself, needing admiration and believing others are inferior. And then finally lacking empathy for others, which is kind of what we're talking about is like, you know, when we're trying to interface with different people, you may be hitting that brick wall. And like you had said, it's it's a wide spectrum of narcissistic behavior to a disorder. Mm-hmm. It's a wide spectrum there. We all probably have some aspect of narcissism in our life at any given moment. I don't know. Maybe you can answer that. But that you might be hitting a brick wall with somebody and you're thinking like, why? Right. And maybe you can start to evaluate this person a bit more. Like, do they tend to think very highly of themselves or do they need admiration I even had to question myself on reading this definition. I'm like, you know, I kind of like admiration sometimes. <laughs> I enjoy it, but it, do I need it? Right. So I think, you know, even asking for myself, like, I like to be when I do great things. If I achieve a goal, I, I love it when I get, you know, a response from the people I'm working with. Not so much praise, but more like, I guess, just feedback, you know? Sure. So we have to really consider, like, this definition and the people we're working with in life, you know, the reason they can't show up, maybe it's because they're in these in the spectrum. Yeah. So one of the ways in which you can sort of think about it is like people with narcissism, you can often walk away feeling like ashamed or that sense of not good enough, like goodness gracious, nothing I ever do lives up to what they expect. Or I just feel so belittled in my interactions. And sometimes remember language can be nuanced, right? Like If I were to say, like, that's okay, or like, yeah, that's okay. Like, (laughs) there's nuances in language which can still convey this sense of belittling or shaming, right? Because it is this, you are inadequate, and I am amazingly adequate, and how's about you just tell me about how amazing and adequate I am, and then we'll be fine. (laughs) I'm not that person. Okay, cool. Thank you for, that's not me. That's definitely not me. Right, but you can see when you're talking about company cultures, wherein there's this significant power dynamic and that it's a top-down sort of way in which it interfaces, where this can become problematic. Right. Because I also, that other sort of quality relative to narcissism is seeing people more as things than as humans. Mm -hmm. Like, you are a thing. I need thing number one to do what I need it to do so that we're okay. And then I need thing number two. Like you are just an object to meet whatever productivity needs I have. Like, I don't understand why you have a problem. Just do it. Yeah. What's wrong with you? Why haven't you moved already? Yes. I should have this thing back. We should be done with this thing, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the question then we got to ask ourselves is like, if you're in that situation, particularly in the workplace, what can you do? What do you do? Well, maybe you quit. That's maybe the easy button or the hard button, depending upon which perspective you're taking. But uh, Darren Murph, actually, he was on the channel recently, and he's the head of remote at GitLab, and he shared something pretty profound. It was one of their values. It's the no ego rule. Yeah. And there's a book of similar title we talk about on the show. It's the no butthole rule, basically. It's, (laughs) you know, it's this idea. And I like their version of it better because it's like, if you don't bring your ego, you can't bring your narcissism. You can't bring this perspective. And it sort of like sets the tone, as you'd mentioned before. In terms mm-hmm. of culture, generative cultures, it's like this is the role we play by. 
it's what we don't allow is what we allow kind of thing. And I love that they brought like this is like, you know what, to kind of begin to solve this problem in particular, this rule is in place or this value is in place. And we as a company, as an organization, hold this value. And everyone who joins this team understands that we all hold this value. So you join this team because you also hold this value. Mm -hmm. And it's very clear. Yeah. But see how at the top they set the standard. And then reinforce it in terms of their responses or behavior. Right. And so power is a component of day-to-day lives, but it doesn't have to be a construct that's binary, right? Like if you have it, I don't, right? That everything is zero sum. Well, you know, you had more, so I don't have as much. So now I'm going to get on my gerbil wheel and try to muster back up to the same level of power. Meanwhile, you teeter-totter back down, right? Right. And that you can see how that would never work well in terms of outcomes because you need, we all work better together because more people collaborating can create bigger, better, broader things. Yeah. One thing that I can't help but say is like what this does for them in particular is, you know, we talked about this before in prepping for this call is like when when you encounter these kinds of people, these egotistical people, these narcissistic folks, not that they're bad people. I don't, I don't want to like remove them from my life, but I, I can't solve their problems. I can't help them personally. So I need to personally reduce, restrict or omit them. And that's kind of what this no, no, I almost said no. <laughs> the name of the book, the no ego rule does right. is it literally omits them in this case. But like the idea is like if you're encountering these types of people in your life and while you can understand that you can't solve their problems personally, maybe you can give them some pointers. I don't think they'll take them, but you can reduce, restrict or omit. Right. And so recognizing that they can play a lesser of a role in your life and ironically, you could actually be empathetic to them and go, you know what? Like, I mean, so many things I think about, like my phase of life with kids' movies, but it's like in the movie Ferdinand, right? And at the very end, the bull, like he's like, I'm not a fighter. That's the whole message. Sorry, guys, I'm gonna wreck it. I'm not a fighter. And so when the matador has like full reign to slaughter him in the arena, what does he do? He sits down. And he doesn't use his power, which ironically is what? His power. Yeah. <laughs> his lack of using his power is his power. Right. So I'm not going to engage you in a way in which it has to be a battle relative to you getting the sort of attaboys that you need. Like, go ahead. You can you can have them. But I'm going to work hard and do my job because it's important to me, because it's important to the product or the task or other people in my life. So you just sort of give them less sort of weight as it relates to your own emotional world. Does that make sense? You deflate their balloon, essentially. You don't don't allow it to to Mm -hmm. have the air to be the balloon. Yeah, like it can go ahead and they can do that. And so it's figuring out how to work alongside. And usually people, you know, where this is a challenge for them, you know, there was something that was awry way earlier on in their life. And and so if you could see it as just impoverished coping, like they just didn't learn a better way. And now it's pretty more embedded and harder for them to change. Like yeah. come join the human race. And sometimes their powers derive from the reaction, particular reactions. And if you if your reaction is not at all 
the reaction that fuels their sense of being the way they are, you're not giving fuel to the fire, essentially. You're sort of like taking it away. Right. And so, you know, think about how can you apply this in your daily life? You know, asking yourself questions is an awesome strategy relative to reflecting. And even you can ask your board of advisors, right? Those five people, three to five people, like, give me feedback. You know, can I be more adept or relate better to you or other people in my life in being more understanding emotionally, like giving your perspective credence? I think it's important that people recognize that part of empathy involves hearing somebody else's perspective that you might think is impaired or inaccurate, but it's filtered through their lens. (laughs) So I can't say that somebody else's lens isn't right. It's a lens that was built. And this is why it's so amazing with how much our brains can change and what skills we can cultivate if we so choose. That's where the fun stuff happens. And I can only imagine the sort of domino effect that comes when one person decides to make that change in their life and then in their work life and then in a broader, bigger scale that influences people for that shared greater good. And isn't that like the fun stuff? All right, that's it for this episode of Brain Science. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hopefully this discussion on empathy has expanded your viewpoint on empathy itself and its counterpart, compassion. And for those out there who want to support this podcast, you can do so by checking out Changelog++. It is our membership to make the ads disappear, get closer to the metal, and have a lot of fun doing it. We ship all of our shows into one single feed that's ad-free, and we hope you enjoy that. Check it out at changelog.com slash plus plus. Huge thanks to our partners who get it, Linode, Fastly, and Rollbar. Also, huge thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our awesome beats. And, of course, one of the best ways you can help our show is also by giving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. Head to changelog.com slash science to find our Apple Podcast link. Thanks again for tuning in this week. We'll see you next week.